From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, August 27th. I'm Marco Werman. Tropical Storm Isaac is churning toward the Gulf Coast. We'll hear about the damage it caused earlier in Haiti. Plus, we'll check in on the soggy GOP convention in Tampa and on the Republican debate there over a new immigration platform. And later, the daughter of slain Nigerian activist Ken Sarawiwa returns to the land of her father. Coming back to Ogoniland, was, it was really nice because you're in the one place in the world where people can actually pronounce your name properly. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Tropical Storm Isaac gained some strength as it churned over the Gulf of Mexico today. It's expected to touch down late tomorrow, somewhere between Louisiana and the Florida Panhandle, as a Category 2 hurricane. The governors of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama have all declared states of emergency. Today, the storm's outer bands drenched Tampa, Florida, where the Republican National Convention is on hold for one day. We'll go to that rather damp convention later in the show to talk about the GOP's immigration platform. First, though, we turn to Haiti, which was hit by Tropical Storm Isaac over the weekend. The world's Amy Bracken is in Port-au-Prince. Amy, how did Haiti fare with Isaac? I'm thinking in particular of the hundreds of thousands of Haitians who are still living in tent camps after losing their homes in that devastating 2010 earthquake. Well, it's a mixed report so far. Uh, There were expectations that it would really hit the South badly and not so much the rest of the country. But it's been surprising uh, how much it has affected most of the country. It didn't hit Port-au-Prince as badly as some other places. But Port-au-Prince is where you have an enormous homeless population. There are some uh, 400,000 people still homeless from the earthquake. So, of course, they were pretty severely affected by the storm. I mean, what is it like in those camps when heavy rains like Isaac start to fall? There's some places that I visited on on the outskirts of Port-au-Prince where um, during the night of the storm, there were uh, tents that were blown down. There were tents that were flooded. But what people were really concerned about in one camp was uh, the fact that a a child had died overnight. It, It wasn't actually due to the storm itself, but there was a baby who was sick and there were no... Uh, humanitarian groups or emergency groups that were able to get in to rescue the child. Uh, The gate was locked and um, nobody was able to find a key to get out or to get the emergency people in. This was part of this ongoing dispute between the residents of the camp and the landowner. There are a number of cases where people are living on private land and the landowner just is tired of them living there and is trying to push them off. So this is the way that um, things are being dealt with in some areas. I mean, I think there are a lot of aid agencies that are out working very hard at trying to help people, but 
of all the camps that I visited, I haven't seen any evidence of basic services being provided. Well, given how shaky the infrastructure is, um, I was going to ask you, you know, a government official said today that the death toll just from Tropical Storm Isaac is 19 people dead. Obviously, 19 too many, but were people there surprised the toll wasn't a lot higher? Yes. I mean, certainly in Haiti, it could have been much, much worse. And um, there was a lot more communication from the government this time around than there has been in the past. People were ordered to stay home. And so that might have reduced the number. Of course, it's still early and there probably people or maybe people who haven't been counted. I mean, I went to a Doctors Without Borders uh, emergency room and they said, well, no, we haven't seen a, an increase in people coming in. But of course, there are no buses or taxis out. So and there aren't a lot of emergency vehicles. So if people were in trouble, chances are they wouldn't be coming in. Haitians in Port-au-Prince clearly angry, as you say, that government services aren't functioning. What is their mood right now dealing with yet another blow from Mother Nature? I noticed when I came back to Port-au-Prince a few weeks ago that people just seem really fed up with their living situation to start with. And to have something like this, it's not, I think, so much the storm as the fact that they're just not getting help. I mean, it's just extraordinary that more than two and a half years after the earthquake and, and people just can't understand why real decent housing hasn't been set up for people. The world's Amy Bracken speaking with us from Port-au-Prince, Haiti, where the rain has stopped and people are starting to pick up the pieces after Tropical Storm Isaac. Amy, thank you and take care. Thank you, Marco. Amy blogged about Haiti's still-crowded makeshift tent camps and how residents there fared in the storm. You can read that at theworld.org. The passing of Neil Armstrong over the weekend had many Americans thinking back to 1969. Armstrong's giant leap for mankind meant the U.S. beat the Soviet Union in the race to land a manned mission on the moon. A decade earlier, it was the Soviets who seemed to be in the lead. In 1959, they landed the first spacecraft on the moon, an unmanned spherical contraption named Luna 2. At the time, Sergei Khrushchev, son of former Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev, was working on the Soviet missile and space program. He did so until 1968, the year before the Apollo 11 moon landing. Sergei Khrushchev came to the U.S. in 1991, and he's now a visiting professor at Brown University. Mr. Khrushchev, as someone who had participated in the Soviet missile and space program, uh, was Armstrong's landing on the moon a memorable day for you? Of course, it was a memorable day for me, like for all the humanity, because it was one more big achievement. First time we go to other planet, even it was only moon. But at that time, we thought that very soon we'll go to Mars. And of course, everybody wants to be the first, but the same like it is in the Olympic Games, it is important that somebody win. I'm wondering, did you think when you heard the news of Neil Armstrong landing the moon, oh darn, the Americans got there first? We were prepared for this because at that time I was moved from the space program to computers, but still I was in touch with all my friends and we knew with all this attempt of the Americans going step by step toward the moon. So it was very predictable and we knew that it will happen. And we were happy that it was happened without any losses. Now, much of the world was flabbergasted when President Kennedy announced in the early 60s that the U.S. would put a man on the moon before the end of the decade. Then Neil Armstrong did his walk on the moon in 1969. Do you think that pushed the Soviet Union even further to develop their space program? It didn't push us forward because we launched 
the Sputnik and the first man in space using the uh, R-7 missile that was uh, designed for the protection against possible American attack. So it was not for free, but it was not for the big uh, spending. And when Kennedy announced uh, that they will build this program to send men to moon, my father told that Soviet Union will not participate in this race because it is too expensive. Mm. We have other priorities to make the life of the Soviet people better. So he didn't do it. Then Armstrong stepped on the moon. He told, of course, it will be better if it will be Soviets, but it is still one of big achievements for all the humanity. Mr. Khrushchev, uh, since the passing of Neil Armstrong over the weekend, there's been a lot of talk about how Armstrong may have been the last great American pioneer. What do you think about that? I think that we have pioneers all the time if the nation is strong enough to explore the new frontiers. It can be human being and have to be an automatic vehicle. And we have now the successor of the Neil Armstrong. It is Curiosity, who is now traveling on the Mars. I think that the human travel to space more and more, in my personal opinion, going to the history because the automatic vehicles are much cheaper and much more reliable than human flesh. Sergei Khrushchev, thank you very much. Thank you. If all the reminiscing about the moon landings got you feeling nostalgic, here's another story for you. It's about classic American cars and their popularity in Sweden, of all places. According to some estimates, Sweden boasts more restored classic American cars than the U.S., especially from the 1950s. An estimated 5,000 classic Detroit models are shipped there each year. The fervor for the cars is also fueling a subculture of American nostalgia in Scandinavia. Reporter Angela Bass sent us this report after visiting a classic car show in rural Sweden. 46-year-old Ovitas was just a kid when he started obsessing over Mopars. That's American muscle cars outfitted with Chrysler's special line of motor parts. When I was 10, yeah, there was an illegal street race in, in my town, Redvik. It was a 68 Hemikuda, which is very, very rare, but he, he drove it in the street. And the other car was a 71 Charger RT, both Mopars. So then I became a Moper man. <laughs> Vitasp is among thousands of muscle car diehards in Sweden. He organized this annual muscle car event in the quiet mountain village of Orsa. Owners of Ford Mustangs and Plymouth Barracudas show off their gleaming hot rods in a big grass field. Others take turns racing down an airstrip. These cars were once driven on American roads, but they were ditched in the mid-1970s for more modern and fuel-efficient models. Then they started turning up overseas. We found out that these cars were, <laughs> were almost for free, so we, we went over and bought them. I'm interested in all American cars. And I have one from Riverside, Los Angeles, and one from Texas. That's Hasse Erickson. These days, he and others are buying their cars online. He owns a 1969 Chevy Chevelle and 1970 Buick Electra, but he's never stepped foot in the States. This car craze thrives here for a couple of reasons. 
For one, in rural Sweden, big barns and large garages provide enough elbow room to restore these classic cars. And then there's the sheer size of the cars, says Ulf Vitas. The good thing with 50s, cars from the 50s, they were big, you could get in 10 people and drink beer, because in Sweden we can drink beer while we, while we are in the car. The whole car craze spawned a subculture here, Ragara. 40-year-old Frederick Tilburg has been living the Ragara lifestyle for the past decade. For many Ragara, that means picking up chicks, chugging cheap beer, and riding around in a classic American car crammed with friends. But Tilburg had to sell his 1969 Dodge Dart for a more family-friendly set of wheels. My girlfriend is into these old cars, and uh, I, I hope my I have four children here, I hope they, they all <laughs> like, like it when they grow up. You can hear another popular American export on Ragara car speakers, Rockabilly. But this is a Swedish band. Morgan Carlson caught the Rockabilly bug at 13. Today, he's 33 and sports a pompadour. He sells the Rockabilly look, crisp dress shirts with checkered collars, at car shows across Sweden. Pretty much. This, this is a way for me to, um, to help me to, 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 uh, to buy a car again. <laughs> the car he wants is a 1959 Cadillac that needs a lot of work. It costs $50,000. You have to put in at least the same amount to get them rolling and get them in a good shape. So, so. That's a lot of money for a really old car that's not yeah. in very good condition. But, uh, yeah, but it's, you can never get that kind of feeling in a new car. That's for sure. <laughs> so if your family owned a Chrysler Newport or a Cadillac Coupe de Ville back in the day, there's a decent chance it's here in Sweden. For The World, I'm Angela Bass, Retvik. Classic American wheels, that 68 Barracuda, that's what I always wanted. We have a great slideshow at theworld.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. One of America's staunchest allies in Africa is in the middle of a tricky transition. Ethiopia is facing an uncertain future without its longtime leader, Meles Zenawi. He died a week ago in Belgium. His funeral is scheduled for next Sunday. Meles Zenawi ruled Ethiopia since the early 1990s when he took power after a civil war. Now there are concerns that his passing could lead to instability in this key U.S. ally. The nonprofit International Crisis Group has warned of serious consequences in a new report. E.J. Hogendorn co-authored the report. He says the potential for instability stems from the way Melis Zanawi ran Ethiopia over the past two decades. While he was in charge, he concentrated power very much within himself and within his party, the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front. And as he leaves, there is no clear succession strategy, and so there is a big power vacuum, and no one really knows who's going to be in charge. Now, uh, apparently the deputy prime minister, uh, I'm not even sure how to pronounce his name, Haile Mariam Dessalane, is that it? You're right. He'll be rising up to the post of prime minister. What do we know about him? He has been a, a loyal member of the uh, umbrella Ethiopian People's Democratic Front, but we don't know whether or not he will have sufficient political power to rule. 
Now, the late Mela Zanawi was once regarded as a hero in Ethiopia for leading the charge against dictator Mengistu. Um, the big turning point for Mela seemed to happen just before I got there on a reporting trip in 2005. Elections in which the opposition seemed to gather more power than ever and then charge Melis and his party with cheating them out of a national victory. Uh, remind us what happened next. Well, as you rightly alluded, there was a kind of a democratic revolt against uh, Melis's rule. Uh, Melis then essentially uh, rigged the subsequent elections, and uh, he won all the parliamentary seats uh, except for two. And that tension has kind of remained uh, the status quo ever since in Ethiopia and up until Melis's death. Um, he, he arrested a lot of dissidents. Uh, there were demonstrations. How many of those political opponents are still in prison? Uh, it's unclear. Uh, it certainly is a lot. Um, and most of the other political leaders have been essentially hounded into exile. Essentially, Amelis has been relying more and more on repression. And, and our real concern is that after Amelis, if the, the same people stay in charge, they'll have to rely even more on, on repression. And of course, if they keep the lid on tighter, uh, when it comes off, it will come off even more forcefully. But it sounds like what you're saying is that uh, the new prime minister will probably try and keep a lid on dissent. Well, well, just to be precise, he is the acting head of state. Uh, It is not clear whether or not he will actually be named uh, the permanent prime minister. Uh, All the indications are that uh, because there is no clear succession mechanism, uh, there is a leadership struggle. And uh, what remains to be seen is, is who is going to become the prime minister. And perhaps as importantly, who who is going to be the chair of the ruling party and the front that are actually the government? E.J. Hogan-Dorn of the International Crisis Group in Washington. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Nigeria in West Africa has long faced periodic instability over the years. Take the mid-1990s when the government put down a revolt of activists in the Niger Delta. Naw Sarawiwa was just a teenager when military leaders in Nigeria executed her father. He was writer, television producer, and environmental activist Ken Sarawiwa. The Sarawiwa family is from Nigeria's vast oil-producing Niger Delta, home of the Ogoni people. Ken Sarawiwa's demands for the Agonis to receive a greater share of oil revenues had angered Nigeria's government. He was arrested and, after a show trial, was hanged in 1995. His daughter, Naw, though born in Nigeria, had been raised in England. Ten years after her father's death, after Nigeria's government had finally returned his remains to his family, Naw went to his ancestral village, Bane, to bury him. She describes the journey in her new book, Looking for Transwonderland, Travels in Nigeria. In 2005, my brother Junior, sister Zina, half-sister Sinto, Uncle Owens and I prepared the remains for burial. As Junior brought out the large bag containing our father's dissembled skeleton, Zina cried out loud on the far edge of the room. Sinto watched silently through her tears. I decided that the situation was only as macabre as my mind would allow, so I forced myself to lift out a long bone wrapped in newspaper. Uncle Owens, a medical doctor, helped us to identify and arrange each femur, fibula, metacarpal and rib, settling our minds into a more industrious mood as we assembled the skeleton. Before long, everyone was helping out. It was hard to conceive that these coarse brown objects we held in our hands were our father, a once energetic man with dark, stocky flesh. In vain, I searched for his face in the skull now resting at one end of the coffin. The two front teeth were missing. How and why, I didn't know. But when Junior placed a pipe between the upper and lower jaws, his teeth metamorphosed into that familiar smile. That is just so surreal. 
Yeah, it's not something you ever expect. You know, you just never imagined that you'll actually see the skeleton of people in your family. There in Bane, in the village of your father, you, you write that you feel really connected to Nigeria, more connected uh, than perhaps any other place in the world. What does it mean to you, No, to be a Goni, a minority ethnic group from Nigeria? You know, when you're in Lagos, uh, the, the biggest city, or you're up in the north, you're surrounded by people who are a different ethnic group from you. And, and normally that doesn't matter. When you're in London, we're all Nigerians. But once you've mm. been in Nigeria for a few months, you start to feel the sort of ethnic differences a lot more. So coming back to Ogoniland, was, it was really nice because you're in the one place in the world where people can actually pronounce your name properly. And it's all around you. You know, you go to the internet cafes and the market and everyone's speaking speaking, you know, Kana, that's the dialect. And so, yeah, I felt a a much stronger sense of being Ogoni as opposed to Nigerian on this trip. I can't imagine uh, your father, uh, when he was alive, took you to uh, Trans Wonderland, the place in the title of your book. No, he didn't. (laughs) (laughs) He wasn't a big amusement park person. No, no, no. no. (laughs) Trans Wonderland, the place in the title, is actually an amusement park in the city of Ibadan. Uh, Tell us about it. It was very decrepit and it had been built by a previous dictator 20 years ago. And basically it looked as if it was deserted, like none of the rides seemed to be operating. But then a man came along, he was the manager, and, and said that uh, I could just go on any ride I wanted, just, you know, point at it and he would switch on the button. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I found myself sitting alone on a Ferris wheel with a small crowd of uh, people just watching me and feeling very foolish. But the amusement park was really... It was a symbol of the Nigeria that I'd wanted to experience, the, you know, the Nigeria that was separate from the murder and the, the dictatorships and all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, the title of the book, Looking for Trans Wonderland, is, is about looking for that side of Nigeria. But it's also a, a metaphor in the sense that it was decrepit, it had, you know, fallen into decline. Mm. And, you know, you could say the same about Nigeria since independence. You conclude that you couldn't really live uh, back in Nigeria. As you write, beneath it all lurked the belief in witchcraft, the oil dependency, the politicians' constant acceptance of low standards. And you say you'd never get used to that. Is it coincidental that oil dependency and politicians' low standards are what your father was fighting against? The oil has made... Nigerian politicians very complacent. It's, to this day, oil still accounts for 90% of our foreign earnings. And so, you know, over the 50, 60 years since independence, the economy hasn't diversified the way it should have done. So our manufacturing is very low and, you know, a succession of corrupt leaders have you know, milked the oil industry and, and made themselves very rich and impoverished the the nation as a whole. So, yeah, you know, oil breeds this sort of corruption and complacency. Noor Sarawiwa is the author of Looking for Trans Wonderland, Travels in Nigeria. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, how news outlets in Texas are helping to fill a news void in Mexico. We saw enormous growth on Twitter and Facebook. And a lot of it was driven from people from Mexico wanting to know what was going on in their communities, in their neighborhoods, that their local media couldn't report, but we were. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The Republican National Convention was called into session today in Tampa. But with Tropical Storm Isaac still in the neighborhood, the gavel came back down just minutes later. Now organizers will cram four days' worth of action, including Mitt Romney's official nomination for president, into three days. One item on the agenda is a new GOP platform on immigration. Valeria Fernandez of the Feet in Two Worlds Immigrant Journalism Project is in Tampa to follow that debate. The Republican Party is adopting basically Arizona's platform as a model, which they want to take to the rest of the country. So basically what they want to do is the, is the so-called self-deportation of the people that are illegally here in the United States and implement programs such as E-Verify, which is a database that we have in Arizona in a mandatory way to make sure that the people that are employed are working here legally. And the other thing that I include in, that they are including, which is interesting, is uh, some sort of a guest worker program. And I believe that's mostly to appeal to the business sector of the Republican Party that's been talking for a long time about the need for these workers. Does Mitt Romney support a guest worker program? Romney hasn't talked much about immigration recently. During the primaries, he's really said that he supported self-deportation, that he would veto the DREAM Act if it came to his desk. And recently he has taken a much softer stance because he wants to appeal to the conservative Hispanic vote. And we haven't heard much. And, and, And certainly he said recently that he will support the DREAM Act if that involved for these young kids to get enrolled in the military. Well, it's interesting. I mean, as you said, during the primaries, uh, Romney took a pretty hardcore go and self-deport yourself stance. Immigration is such a potent issue. Maybe the the GOP has just decided to keep their head down about it. Well, you know, you, you have different opinions within the GOP. You know, you have people like Marco Rubio that want some form of a DREAM Act. And then you have people like Chris Kobach, who is a close advisor to Romney, who is very involved in this Republican platform, and he's calling for deportation. I've been talking to Latino Republicans that live here in Florida, in Tampa. They are of the idea that, that, you know, Romney right now needs to stay sort of on the conservative side of issues to appeal to those voters. Uh, But they don't believe that he will take a harsh anti-immigrant stance if he's elected president. Being in Tampa, I'm wondering if you can share with us uh, any experiences you've had with local Latino Republicans, uh, some of whom have experienced firsthand what it's like to have family members in immigration detention. But what have they told you? Well, I had a chance to speak with Carlos Acuna, whose wife was detained in the um, detention center here in Florida for about two months. This is an immigrant from Peru. He's a U.S. citizen. Immigration wasn't something in the forefront of his mind, but ever since his wife uh, was detained and she was arrested and she still faced the possibility of deportation, things changed for him. Acuna says that he can't trust President Obama. He has a great disappointment with the promises that he made about passing some form of immigration reform during his first term. He's going to vote for Romney. I also talked to some of the delegates coming from Arizona. It's not black and white. Some of them are supporting measures similar to the DREAM Act while they want enforcement. Another point of view is uh, making its way to Tampa and the Republican convention. Uh, Some Latino protesters are heading there, in particular, one group from Arizona. What can you tell us about them? 
Well, the Latina Freedom Riders, this is a group led by women voters. They really want to appeal to to the sensitivity of other women with the immigration issue by really challenging this platform for self-deportation that the Republican Party is putting forth and also talking about the reality of, of these young kids that call themselves dreamers. I understand that a family member of Joaquin Luna, this is a young man, 18 years old, that committed suicide. He was here illegally in the country, is going to be joining the caravan. They believe that, that Joaquin's story that really exemplifies the struggles and really the psychological toll that being in the country without paper takes on these young kids that are pretty much raised in the United States and when they try to go to school or seek better opportunities, their doors are shutting down. As well as protest Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who's going to be here on Thursday speaking with some delegates from Arizona and other states. Correspondent Valeria Fernandez with Feet in Two Worlds, the immigrant journalism project of the Center for New York City Affairs at the New School. Thanks very much for speaking with us. Thank you very much for having me. The drug war in Mexico has turned local journalism there into a potentially deadly career choice. The cartels often threaten or kill hometown journalists who dare to report on the latest violence. That's led to self-censorship by many news outlets in the country, which is why drug-related murders and shootouts often go unreported by local media in the Mexican border state of Tamaulipas, just south of Texas. But a unique system for getting information out to the public has emerged there. As Shannon Young reports, it involves on-the-ground witnesses, social media reporters, and journalists on the Texas side of the border. The Tamaulipas-Texas border runs from the sister cities known as the Two Laredos to another binational borderplex, Matamoros-Brownsville, near the Gulf of Mexico. This particular stretch of border contains lucrative corridors for legal and illicit trade, and the Mexican side has seen some of the worst urban firefights in the ongoing drug war. Many of these shootouts occur in broad daylight, and some can be heard clearly from the Texas side of the river. When I was at the Herald, you know, our office was downtown Brownsville, you know, a few blocks away from the bridge. And if you're hearing gunfire, you know, you know something bad is happening. Tamaulipas native Ildefonso Ortiz works as a crime reporter at the McAllen Monitor, but was at the Brownsville Herald when violence along the border got out of hand. Another Rio Grande Valley-based reporter, Sergio Chapa, says the situation across the river changed dramatically in early 2010, when Gulf cartel capo Ociel Cárdenas was sentenced in Houston to 25 years in federal prison. That created a split between the Zetas and the Gulf cartel, the former allies, now bitter, bitter rivals and enemies. And what that did to our region is it just changed it forever. Things got a lot more violent south of the border. Chapa says one of the consequences was a media blackout in Mexico, as cartels bought off and attacked traditional media outlets into silence. Chapa works for KGBT, the CBS affiliate in the Rio Grande Valley. He says the television station continued its coverage of events on both sides of the border. One of the things that that became immediately obvious is we started getting a lot of interest on it. This is the same year that we started on Twitter and on Facebook and stuff, and our, our stations, KGBT, we saw enormous growth on Twitter and Facebook. And a lot of it was driven from people from Mexico wanting to know what was going on in their communities, in their neighborhoods, that, that their local media couldn't report, but we were. But Tamaulipas citizens have turned to social media to generate information as well. 
Twitter users in particular have developed their own alert system to warn each other about risk situations like shootouts, grenades, or the presence of large groups of armed men in plain clothes. Chui is an active member of the Citizen Alert System in Tamaulipas. He says social media is the only way residents can find out about risk situations in real time. But the fact that violent incidents aren't covered in the traditional local media allows state government officials to dodge their responsibility to give explanations and to call the citizen reports the product of collective psychosis. Chewy says when journalists on the U.S. side of the border pick up, give credibility, and apply journalistic rigor to the citizen reports in Mexico, it helps to validate the information that officials often ignore or minimize. The Texas-based reporters who cover the situation in Tamaulipas do vet the information which comes through the social media alert system and try to supplement it with official on-record statements. That's not always easy to do, according to crime reporter Ildefonso Ortiz. Official channels are not going to put out what's really happening. I mean, and that is one of the reasons why there's such a gap in, in information. The military will put out a press release about we seize this, we seize that, and if it's about a firefight, it has to be big enough and it will be about three days later. From the state officials, you're never going to get a press release. It's very rare and only when it's a positive thing. Another complication is the de facto ban many Texas outlets have placed on their reporters crossing into northern Mexico for work-related purposes. But again, social media users in Tamaulipas help to fill in the gaps, as Chuy explains. The disadvantage for the Texas reporters is that they're not on the ground here. They often seek information through official channels, and it's denied. They tend to rely on the citizens who have a good track record of reliable reporting. It's like teamwork. They support us by documenting the story, and we support them by giving them details about the events. The outlets where Ortiz and Chapa work present information to their audiences in English, but both reporters use their Twitter accounts to make sure relevant news gets out in Spanish as well. Chapa says both methods provide Tamaulipas residents with the information local reporters can't safely cover. Our signal doesn't stop at the river. It actually continues and goes very deep south into Mexico, almost almost an hour and a half south of the border. So, I mean, people can turn on and, and see our television broadcasts if they so choose. And they can also read our stuff online. And we know that they're, that they're reading and watching, and they're very um, interested in that information and content, and we're, we're happy to provide it. While the drug war violence and restrictive climate for press freedoms in Mexico are both situations that don't appear to have quick solutions, at least the experiences in this region provide some hope that citizens and journalists on both sides of the border can work together to get a story out and help their communities stay informed. For The World, I'm Shannon Young in McAllen, Texas. Opposition forces in Syria today claim they shot down a government helicopter in the capital, Damascus. A video, apparently, of that incident has been posted online. It can't be independently verified, but it appears to show an aircraft spiraling down in a ball of flames as fighters on the ground continue to shoot at it. A trail of black smoke follows the chopper as it falls from the sky and seems to crash into a residential area. Journalist Thabet Salam is in the eastern part of Damascus, where he's been gathering information about the incident. According to a witness who was watching, about 10 minutes later, when another helicopter showed up, he said they 
substitute the, the old one with a new version of a Russian helicopter, which is armored himself, which means that one maybe uh, was shot down by uh, ground fire. What has Syrian television been saying about this incident? Well, they admitted uh, the damning of the uh, helicopter, but uh, they said maybe it was due to a technical fault. Uh, they did not confirm it was shot down by fire. If it was shot down by fire, uh, one would assume that would be uh, coming from opposition forces. What, what are the kinds of weapons they would need to bring down a helicopter? Uh, they put a picture of a guy with a sort of primitive anti-aircraft machine gun, something like that. They said, this is the one who shot it down. And uh, it is not that sophisticated weapon. It's not a rocket or anything of the sort. Could an ordinary machine gun really bring down a helicopter? Well, maybe because it was flowing very, very low. After it was downed, actually, uh, the helicopters started flying very high, uh, higher than they used to. Now, you said you're in the eastern part of Damascus, correct? Yes. Right, and that, that's where there's been some shelling today. Is that in any way related to the downing of the helicopter? No, it started at 7 o'clock in the morning. Uh, about two hours later, or three hours maybe, two hours and a half, uh, the helicopter was shot down. It started early in the morning. Mm. The, the bands and the, uh, the explosions were unbelievable, uh, different from any other day since the event started uh, about 18 months ago. We have never witnessed something like this. And in other parts of Damascus, uh, is the fighting as intense? No. And why no, is that? There is something going on. For 10 days now, the caliber is really changing. Uh, it's more fierce. It is continuous. It's, uh, it covers the major parts of Syria. Uh, and maybe this comes as a preparation for the expected mission of the new envoy to Syria. UN and Arab League involved, Slav Ibrahimi, mm. is scheduled to, to start his, you see the man who hit the bank? What, was that a concussion from a shelling? Yeah, yeah. Are, are you in a safe position? Oh, yeah, I'm at my place, actually. I'm in a safe position. Uh, but, uh, you know, because the, the banks are, the explosions are very huge, so you can hear it. Journalist Thabet Salam in Damascus, thank you very much and uh, take care. Thank you, sir. Let's head north for today's GeoQuiz, shall we? How far north? Well, go to Lillehammer, Norway, and then keep going for another 160 miles. We're looking for a small but historic town, famous for both copper mines and reindeer herding. Back in the 17th and 18th centuries, the inhabitants built wooden homes. Dozens of these houses are still standing, and the locals still call them home. And because of those houses, the town was designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1980. The town and the region are also famous for a few typically Norwegian delicacies. They include a sour milk called shukmelk. One Norwegian chef wants the milk's name legally protected, like Parma ham or champagne. But local farmers aren't so sure. We'll have more on that story and the answer to the quiz in just a bit. This is PRI. 
The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. In Europe, certain agricultural products have legally protected names. Think of champagne from France. Only the bubbly from the Champagne region of France can legally carry the name. Now in one small Norwegian town, a battle is brewing over similar designations. The BBC's Maddie Savage reports from Roros, Norway, the answer to today's GeoQuiz. Hello, I'm uh, Mikael Forselius, educated as a chef. Right now, we're sitting and waiting for a lunch in, in one of my restaurants. It's called Café Stuga, and it's inside a building that dates back to 1678. All of the food served here is grown or reared within a few kilometres of the tiny wooden town, and based on recipes used by copper miners hundreds of years ago, like grilled trout and sour cream sauces made from local cow's milk. It's called shock milk. You only can produce it in this area. The, the traditional way of doing it from this area. It's like the same protection you have, can find in Italy on Parmaham and Champagne in France and so on. His passion for local Scandinavian cuisine taps into a wider trend in Europe. But despite ingredients from Norway, Denmark and Sweden increasingly appearing on international menus, farmers in Röros, such as Ingolf Gellin, don't want the same to happen to their produce. Oh, we prefer that uh, people come here for the taste then they can see where it comes from, and they can also meet the hens and they can meet the cows. Mikkel Forsalius and other chefs in the town insist that Roros is already developing a global reputation after picking up several international awards for sustainable tourism. But some critics argue that if the town's food producers decide to keep focusing on attracting visitors rather than exporting goods, then they will face tough competition. That's because many other beauty spots in Scandinavia are also attempting to cash in on the craze for regional dishes. That was the BBC's Maddie Savage reporting there from Roros, Norway. Roros, again, that's the answer to our geo-quiz today. R-O-R-O-S. Finally, you remember Stevie Wonder's classic, Isn't She Lovely? Great tune. Well, in our global hit today, we meet a young English musician who scored an online hit with his own arrangement of the song. The world's Alex Galifant has given it a listen. This is Jacob Collier. Six Jacob Colliers, in fact. Isn't she lovely? Isn't she wonderful? Isn't she precious? Less than one minute. I never find Collier's version on YouTube. You see the screen divided into six boxes, each with a Jacob Collier inside singing one of the parts. No problem. I love to sing and I love to arrange. He was 17 when he sang and arranged it. He's not sure if Mr. Wonder himself has heard this cover. If he had, I'd be that would be absolutely fantastic because he's obviously one of my heroes. Um, it's an absolutely fantastic song. 
Jacob Collier says fantastic a lot. He's only just turned 18, and so he's very much excited by possibilities, especially musical possibilities. It doesn't hurt that he's also scary talented. This is Collier playing a solo on a melodica. I take it from someone who's scratched about in the foothills of jazz harmony for years. Collier knows his stuff. He records all the parts at home in London, and he's quick to acknowledge how lucky he is. He's got space and instruments and a good microphone to play with, but he's making the most of that luck. Collier got a musical start as a boy. Before his voice broke, he sang in professional productions of operas, such as Benjamin Britten's The Turn of the Screw. It's a work that features some really scrunchy harmony, notes in places you don't expect, that stretch the ear a bit. Collier says music like this informed the arrangements he does now, finding weird and interesting ways to harmonize familiar melodies. In fact, he chooses to work with songs that have really familiar melodies, tunes that are so strong they keep sounding right pretty much whatever chords he places underneath them. Here's a good example. Oh, and he's playing double bass on this one too. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. Oh, I've got a wonderful feeling. Everything's going my way. Collier does more than a range. Online you can hear some of his original pieces too, including a setting of Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken. It's a, it's a fantastic poem, it's just about finding your, your own individual way, which I suppose is, is what I'm trying to do. In fact, it's a totally individual approach. He doesn't need anyone else when he can sing all the parts and play all the instruments. He's a drummer too. Jacob Collier if working alone wasn't even a tiny bit narcissistic. Why not collaborate? He said no. He's just trying to get better. Doing everything himself and then putting it all online is a way to get noticed, to get critiqued by his peers, and to gauge his own progress. It's quite easy to, to frown upon your early videos and oh, is, you know, is, is, that, is that the best I, I could have come up with? But I think it's as much for myself as anybody else. It's a way of saying, oh, when I was 17, I was doing that, and now I'm 18 and I've got here. Besides, he plans on working with other people very soon. In a couple of weeks, he begins a four-year course in jazz piano at London's Royal Academy of Music. They only take one jazz pianist each year. And after that... I haven't got a clue, to be honest. I'd like to kind of see where the people that I meet will, will lead me, really. I mean, there's so many different people that I have yet to meet. And watch this space. For The World, I'm Alex Galifant, London. You can watch a video of Jacob Collier performing all six vocal parts in his version of Isn't She Lovely? That's at theworld.org. Also, follow us on Twitter for the latest updates from the show throughout the day. 
We tweet at PRI the World. I tweet at Marco Werman. You can find all of those links at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, thank you for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. The Carnegie Corporation, the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the Annenberg Foundation, the Freeman Foundation, and by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org. PRI, Public Radio International.